as I look around at each of you, my guess is that as you got ready this morning, everyone looked in a mirror in order to accomplish that. You all seem fairly well put together. I'm just going to assume that you did that. Uh, every one of us, the, the ability to clearly see ourselves in a mirror, that's something we do pretty much every day. But I'm willing to bet that almost none of us gives even more than a moment's thought to why it is we can do that. Now, I'm not saying that we're always pleased or, or appreciate what our reflection shows to us, but at the same time, we just see mirrors reflecting our image to us. Well, that's just what mirrors are supposed to do. But what that fails to appreciate is that for centuries, no such reflective device was even available. Actually, in ages long past, they had nothing but uh, polished stone or polished metals in order to see their reflection, which uh, would be equivalent today to taking an unwrinkled sheet of aluminum foil and seeing your reflection in it. That's pretty much the best they had. Later on, of course, there would be, once uh, uh, sheet glass was invented and with the right light, you could get a, a pretty good uh, sense of your reflection and your image. Poor Narcissus, I mean, all he had was a pool of still water in order to reflect his beautiful image back to himself. But it wasn't until someone had the idea to take both things together, that is, polished metal foil and glass and put them together, that we then had something equivalent to what we now have as our mirror, which we look at today, in which we are more able to see a true reflection of ourselves. So we're continuing this series, as I said, just two weeks left now, in this series entitled Procorvum, a, a Latin word meaning to be curved outwards, something that if you've been with us over the past number of weeks, you'll already know that every single one of us is in desperate need of, whether we know it or not, for the simple reason that since the introduction of sin into this world, which you read about in Genesis 3, we are what Augustine and Luther defined as incurvatus in se, that is, we are curved inwards on ourselves. This is the natural state of all human beings. As we've seen, this inward curved nature that we all share is the thing that brings about all the relational struggle, all the relational brokenness that we experience now between everyone, everyone from spouses to children and their parents, entire nations, and certainly between us and God. But what I've also tried to demonstrate to you over these weeks is the way that along with the coming of Jesus, God uses all kinds of different relational tools to help reshape that inward curved nature of every one of our hearts outward once again. Outward towards one another, as well as back to God. Last week, uh, we looked at the way God uses the gift of sex within the covenant safety of a marriage relationship in order to help accomplish that. And, and I so appreciate the graciousness with which you received that difficult teaching. Thank you. This week, I want to show you how God also uses the gift of our gender itself within marriage in order to help accomplish that same outward curving. And it's not in the notes, but I'm just going to clarify uh, for people who are detail-oriented like me and would struggle the rest of the message with this. I'm using the term gender this morning almost interchangeably with the, with the idea of uh, biological sex. Uh, understanding full well that those uh, are related terms, but not necessarily the same thing. Uh, biological sex is a very specific definition, whereas gender is kind of included underneath that heading, but has much more breadth to it. Uh, I just don't want you to be distracted by that. I am using those terms interchangeably today. But looking at the way 
God uses our gender within marriage in order to help accomplish this same recurving uh, outward once again. And in order to show you that, I want to look at this passage from Ephesians 5, which, right? Like if, if, if you didn't get from the reading alone, it, it just comes with all this uh, emotional, cultural, historical baggage and which I'm just going to, I just know it will require at least as much grace and trust from you, if not more, in order to receive. And so I'm, I'm asking for that from you this morning. Beyond that, I mean, just think of the culture and the day we live in. Uh, acknowledging there's a great deal of complexity to it, it probably won't uh, come as any surprise to anyone to, to, to know that presenting a biblical teaching on, on sexuality and gender and suggesting that a male and female binary of gender is something that actually exists, as well as the fact that gender is something that God created, that he assigns and that he defines and that we don't get to. God defines that, not us. That couldn't be a more countercultural message today. Add to that the, the ways this passage has been twisted and distorted over the years to bring about oppression of women as well as shaming of men, not to mention the fact current cultural attitudes around critical theory, which would say, as a man, I don't even have the right to speak to women about their roles in a marriage, could altogether legitimately, the question could very legitimately be asked, why preach on this passage or about this subject at all? There's just too much working against you. Why bother? It's a great question. Glad you asked. Uh, the best answer I can give you is that just as we looked last week, where Paul had that teaching about not depriving one another sexually and how that had been so misused and abused over the years, uh, uh, if a scripture has been abused and misused, that doesn't erase the original truth it was intended to communicate. And in fact, if scriptures have been misused in, in such a way as this, which this passage absolutely has, I think that makes them even more important for us to preach on. So that errors can be exposed and, and misapplication corrected. And well, well beyond that, I just want to say that I also happen to believe that there's also a lot of beauty and goodness in this passage that, that Paul has written for us here. Intended to help, yes, reshape the inward curve nature of our hearts, but also to remind us. Just as both polished metal foil and glass are needed to clearly reflect our image, so God designed our gender differences as women and men to require both equally as well in order to reflect his image in which we were created. And so in saying all that, first of all, if you had a cut and paste feature in your minds, I would just ask you to do that very thing with what I said last week by way of introduction. Just presenting to you uh, both the fear I have of unintentionally offending or hurting someone by what I'm saying this morning. I don't, I don't want to do that. But I also ask you to cut and paste the part where I'm just inviting you. Please, please, please. If there's something I say this morning that is offensive, that is hurtful to you, would you bring it to me? Uh, email me, text me, call me this week, and, and, and let's talk it out. Let's, let's have a conversation that hopefully can bring clarity or, or even repentance if that's necessary. Whatever it is, I want to offer that very same thing. But I'd also like to ask something from you this morning. That you would both suspend judgment as well as all preconceived ideas that you bring to what this passage means as we come to it this morning if you could maybe you've studied this before maybe you've heard sermons on it if you could as much as possible i know it's not totally possible as much as possible if you could suspend 
judgment as we come into this. I think it's going to give us the best chance possible to allow this text to speak to us perhaps in a way that we hadn't considered before. I tried to do that myself, and I know even I was confronted in some new ways that I hadn't understood this passage in the past. And I'm hoping the same thing will happen to us, but we need to kind of set down our preconceived ideas to do it. So, if you're willing to do that, here's, here's how we're going to do this this morning. I want to do a quick review, just a quick review of some of the things we've looked at over the weeks in order to help lay a foundation for helping us to understanding gender differences as completion. And then we're going to look at how God designed our different roles within marriage to help shape, to reshape the inward curved nature of our heart outwards once again, allowing us to live into the full, complete, very good design that God has for us. So there we'll look at deferential completion and then sacrificial completion. So quick review, helping lay the foundation for gender differences as completion and then deferential completion and sacrificial completion. So. If you closed your Bibles, would you open them again with me to this passage in Ephesians 5, starting at verse 21. Follow along with me as we consider how God uses the tool of gender within marriage to help curve us back outwards towards one another, as well as to himself. Okay, so let's do this quick review and help us understand gender difference as completion. Gender difference as completion. Now, in the book of Genesis chapter 1, if you know, we get this broad scope, macro view of the creation of the world and everything in it, culminating in the creation of people. In Genesis 1, 26, we read this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move around on the ground. So we understand this to be the creation of, of man and, and and he's made in God's image and likeness. But then there's a surprising twist, which you probably already heard there, and which we see in the next verse as well, particularly, where all of a sudden God's creation of a him turns into a creation of a them. Genesis 1.27, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So there's a number of things going on there, but what I want to point out in particular are two things. First of all, this is the very first mention of gender in the Bible, and it's spoken in the creation account of all things, which shows us, again, speaking of gender, particularly biological sex, it shows us that gender is something that's woven into the very essence of God's original design for humanity, which speaks to its enduring permanence, its prototypical nature from this point onwards across all times and cultures. This is the way God designed humanity from the beginning, and so that continues to endure throughout all time and eternity. Second, both male and female are said to be made equally in the image and likeness of God. Both in the following verses, they're both blessed by God. They're both given dominion over the earth and everything in it, which also speak to the enduring permanence and prototypical nature of equality between men and women across all times and cultures. And we've got this wrong a lot over the course of history, but God's original intent is that men and women were both created equal and with equal dignity and worth and value. And as I've mentioned previously, Genesis 1.31, after God finishes it all, he, he looks over his whole creation and speaks his benediction, his very good over what he has made, which as we've said a few times now, means not just that God is pleased with what he created, but that it is now complete. 
when you switch over to chapter 2 of Genesis, there's a, that's basically kind of a retelling of the same creation account, only now it's like very detailed and zoomed in, particularly on the creation of the man and the woman. Uh, and it talks there about their intimate relationship with one another, as well as with God. And what we learn there is that although the man and the woman are created equally in the image and likeness of God, they're not created at the same time or in the same way. This is why, first of all, we see the first malediction. God speaks the very first not good over his creation in chapter 2 and verse 18, where God says it is not good that the man is alone. The idea there being, okay, the woman hasn't been created yet in this telling of the creation account. But as we've said a number of times, when God says not good, he doesn't mean imperfection, or he doesn't mean that uh, he made some kind of a mistake and now he needs to start over. What he's saying is, He's expressing that the creation is not yet complete. It's incomplete without the creation of the woman being brought into the mix, which then provides much greater context for our understanding of the enduring permanence, prototypical nature of male and female. He created them back in chapter 1 and 27 because what it shows us, again, just like that need for polished metal foil and glass is needed to reflect our image to ourselves, both Male and female are necessary in God's good design to properly reflect his image and likeness, to, to bring it to completion. To be very good, you need both. And I know he wasn't trying to, but if he wanted to be theologically accurate, what Tom Cruise really should have said to Renee Zellweger and Jerry Maguire was not, you complete me, but look, together, we properly, fully reflect the image of God. That's what he would have said if it was a theological movie which it clearly wasn't. So in order to bring this completion to his creation and to the reflection of his image, God takes one of the man's ribs. He creates the woman, which 2.18 says is to be a helper suitable for him. And we've talked about this a number of times too. I know that language is like, ugh. It sounds offensive. It sounds demeaning. And yet, what commentators point out is that term helper. First of all, the Hebrew word ezer is used all throughout the Bible actually to refer to God himself. And what it means is actually a reference to, uh, it's used other places to refer to reinforcements in a battle without which the battle would be lost. So helper isn't referring to the strength or weakness of the person doing the helping. It's referring to the need of the person they're helping that they couldn't accomplish the task without the help. Same thing with the word suitable. That word also kind of sounds like suitable. What do you mean? But in the Hebrew, the word literally is interpreted as like opposite. He created a like opposite helper, as in they are alike, but they're also different. Which Kathy Keller helpfully describes in The Meaning of Marriage, which she co-wrote with her husband as meaning, like two pieces of a puzzle that fit together because they're not exactly alike nor randomly different but they are differentiated such that together they can create a completed whole. That's God's design in bringing completion of the two together. So there's a great deal more we could say about that already, but again, this is just supposed to be a review. So for the purposes of this message, what we need to come away with and keep at the forefront throughout our minds here are three things. First of all, male and female are a part of God's original pre-fall design before everything went haywire with the introduction of sin. Secondly, both male and female are said to equally bear the image and likeness of God and are also both necessary in order to properly reflect it. Finally, male and female are like opposites to one another. That is, we're, we're different. 
We're different from each other. And those differences are actually a good part of God's design to bring about his very good completeness. End of review. Okay, so that's gender difference as completion, how God uses our difference to bring about completion. That's going to give us a framework now for how we can look at our passage in Ephesians 5 and help us understand the goodness of God's design in the different roles he designed us to fulfill within marriage. But again, gender differences are a part of God's very good pre-fall design, before sin's introduction into the world. And as I said, when we looked at marriage in general as a tool that God uses to help reshape our inward curve nature, it would appear God also designed our differences with the damage that was yet to come already in mind. He, he, he knew what was coming, and he designed these differences before, knowing that they would help once things went bad. So let's look at those differences now in more detail, and, and because Paul begins with women, we'll begin there as well, and talk about deferential completion. Deferential completion. Look, uh, first of all, at verse 21. And I wanted to spend a little bit more time here intentionally because this actually has application for both men and women roles that, Bible, that the Bible lays out for marriage. So look at what Paul says. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now what most commentators point out is that this is a transitional verse taking us out of Paul's teaching in the previous verses about what it means to be filled with the Spirit in general to now speaking about what it looks like in the home. And the clear instruction here is that as they are filled with the Spirit, men and women are both to submit to one another. Let me say that again. Men and women are both to submit to one another. And the motivation being that they do this out of their reverence, that is literally the holy fear of Christ. But do you see, like, already, I, I don't know if it does it for you, but as I read that, already that changes the whole tone of this passage for me. Because usually what ends up being the sole takeaway for so many people when we talk about this is wives submit to your husbands. That's what this passage is about. Everyone's like, oh yeah, yeah, that passage, wives submit to your husbands, that, that's all it's about. But when you read it in context, all of a sudden we see what Paul is actually communicating is that husbands and wives are both to submit to one another. That's what this is teaching. Wives and husbands submit to one another, which means what we have in the verses that follow verse 21 is not wives you submit to your husbands, husbands you love your wives, everyone go to your own corner, and that's what it's going to be. No, what we have here is actually gender-specific instruction in the verses that follow because we're different, right? Gender-specific instructions about what submission to one another is supposed to look like in marriage. That's what we're being taught, what submission to each other is supposed to look like. And the point is that as we submit to these roles that God designed for us in particular, it brings about completion, both for ourselves as well as for our spouse. So how is the wife in particular to bring about this completion? We see it in verses 22 and 23. Look with me there. Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands because they're smarter than you. Uh, because they're more important than you. For the husband is the head of the wife, as everybody in my first century Jewish context understands. Is, is, is that what he said? No, right? No, that, that's, that's not what he said, and yet so often that's 
how we hear and interpret these verses, that we just dismiss them as, right, 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 that's that archaic, uh, uh, patriarchal, historically, culturally bound instruction that no longer has bearing in our modern 21st century context. And yet what I trust is plain. When you look at these verses, Paul's instruction is not rooted in first century Ephesus. He says, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. He's rooting this instruction in the eternal relationship of Christ to his church. That's where he's rooting this teaching, which means the only point that this instruction ceases to be relevant, either for wives or for husbands, is when Christ's relationship with his body, the church, ceases. As far as I understand, that hasn't changed. Now, whether he's talking to wives or husbands, Paul gives a qualifier. He always says, do this as or or just as, in order to kind of explain what he means. And this is giving them the idea of how they're supposed to carry out their gender role. Where you see uh, him doing this for the wives is in verse 24. Look there with me. He says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So remember, keep the flow of Paul's logic going here. Wives and husbands are both to submit to one another out of their reverence for Christ. And the way the wife is to submit to their husband is going to look like the way that the church submits to Christ. Okay? How, how does the church do that? How does the church submit to Christ? Well, I think generally speaking, we could say as a, as a church body, we look to Christ's wise, loving leadership, and increasingly, we submit ourselves to his will. That's an incredibly oftentimes difficult, painful thing. It's hard, but we do it because we see it as something good. Uh, I trust that you know, God, and so I'm submitting my will to you as a church, both individuals and all of us together. We submit ourselves to his will, which means what? Oh, great. Okay, so wives are just supposed to stuff their wills, stuff their wisdom and gifts and, and contributions in all ways, just do whatever the husband says? No. No, because first of all, that's not bringing about completion. That's just bare submission. That doesn't bring about completion. In fact, when you understand this in its proper context, you'll see that this kind of submission that Paul is talking about is actually to be the exception to the rule and not the general practice. This is not who gets to hold the remote control and where you go on vacation. This is, these are talking about moments particularly where... where after much debate and sharing and, and each person bringing their own contribution together, you still come to a place where you can't make a decision, but a decision has to be made. The rare, rare occasions when that ever comes up, that's the kind of submission that Paul is referring to alone here. So it should be the exception rather than the rule. Secondly, the Bible never commands unconditional submission to any human authority, but only as it aligns itself with God's will. So, for example, we're told in Romans 13 to submit ourselves to governing authorities. Submit yourselves to governing authorities. But we see the apostles in Acts clearly rebelling against the authorities when they're told no longer teach or preach in Jesus' name, and they say we can't submit to that. We have to obey God rather than men. The point is, the church submits herself to Christ's leadership because his will is perfect, But that's something that could never be said of any husband or any governing authority. So what that gives us is actually a powerful qualification to the instruction for a wife to defer to the will of her husband. Namely, this is only to happen as his own leadership is submitted to 
and guided by God and his word. But someone will undoubtedly ask, and I ask it myself, why is a wife called to defer to the will of her husband like this and not the other way around? Why wouldn't it be the other way? And you know what the ultimate answer is? We don't know. There isn't an answer. Any more than we know, well, why did, God, why did the Son come in, to earth in order to be our Savior and not the Father? These are all questions. We, we don't know why God worked it out and designed it like this. But if we remember that gender differences are a part of God's good design, actually, and male and female reflect God's image differently in a way that the other cannot, I think we're given at least some insight as to why God designed one completion role for the wife and another completion role for the husband. As it relates to the wife being curved outward herself, I think this will-deferring role direct, uh, is uh, directly correlated to the results of sin, which first curved us inward to begin with back in Genesis 3. There, if you remember, uh, they, they rebel against God and, and they take the fruit. God finds them and he talks with them and they, they are given gender-specific curses. The wife is told, your pain will be increased in childbirth. Now, the man's not given that curse, understandably. Man is told, your toil will now be greatly increased in, wor in work. The wife is not given that part of the curse. But as it relates to their relationship and how they work together, there is a part of the curse that relates to each other. And the woman is told, Genesis 3.16, also, your desire will be for your husband. And as we looked at that word in a previous message where we discussed this, we saw that the idea of that word desire is actually used next in Genesis 4 to refer to sin's desire to have us, to take us over, to control us. And so the orientation he's saying of your, you to your husband now will be to devour, to overtake and control him because of sin's inward curse. I'm not making any commentary whatsoever as to whether or not that's how it continues to demonstrably look every time in today's marriage relationship. But I do think it's incredibly significant that the role that God assigns to a wife in marriage is one of deferring judgment, deferring or surrendering control. For how do you correct a curve in one direction without applying a force in the exact opposite direction? But how does deferring to the will of the husband bring completion to him, as well as to their co-reflection of the image of God? Where I think you see that is by looking to Paul's teaching about the submission of Jesus to the will of the Father in Philippians chapter 2. Listen to what Paul writes here about Jesus. Your attitude, he says, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, which shows us, I think, undeniable example of how someone can be fully equal to another in every way. Jesus was in the very nature of God and equal to him, and yet can also submit themselves, defer to the leadership of another in a way that doesn't decrease their value and worth at all. It's not about actually their weakness, but about actually their strength, and which brings about completion and the greater good for both of them in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus intentionally prays to his father, nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done, showing us 
Jesus, he's demonstrating his deferring to the will of the Father. And yet, in John 10, 18, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Which shows us, Jesus is demonstrating here, his submission to the will of the Father was not his obligation, but his loving gift. Which means, what Paul is referring to here within a marriage relationship, every wife should understand, is not your obligation to submit to your husband, it's your loving gift. Nor does submission demean or devalue your worth in any way. As she tried to understand how this works out in marriage herself, as she was wrestling through these gender roles and how does this work herself, Kathy Keller uh, writes of how she came to understand this passage herself. And she says, if it was not an assault on the dignity and divinity, but rather led to the greater glory of the second person of the Godhead to submit himself and assume the role of a servant, how could it possibly injure me to be asked to play out the Jesus role in my marriage? Whenever a wife defers to the loving, sacrificial leadership of her husband, which we're going to look at in a second here, in those rare moments of a true stalemate, what Paul is showing us here is God's good design in the way she is to submit to help curve herself outwards, as well as to bring completion to her marriage in a way that her husband alone could not. He, he needs this in order for him to be complete. Okay. So far, we've made it so far. We okay? Is everyone, we need to take a break? That's gender-specific submission. That's what it's supposed to look like for the wife, bringing deferential completion. The last thing I want to look at now is the gender-specific way a husband is to submit to his wife. And the way that he is curved outwards and brings completion to their marriage in a way that the wife on her own could not is by bringing sacrificial completion. He brings sacrificial completion. And where you see that is by looking at verses 25 to 30 of the same passage. Look with me there. Now, we often try to apply our very same 21st century filter onto this description, too. And we can just try to read it like, you know, husbands, submit to your wives. You know, just do the best you can. Uh, uh, you know, as long as she's not making too many demands on you to change things, and as long as she's submitting to you and every, your every whim, then love your wives. We can read it that way. And yet, once again, no. No. Paul roots the instruction to husbands not in a first century patriarchal culture, but in the internal, unchanging relationship of Christ and his church, stating there, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Now, you probably notice, in some ways, Paul's being even more explicit here. He's going into more detail here about husbands, spelling out what just as Christ loved the church means in no uncertain terms. He's not leaving any room for interpretation here, which isn't just Paul being a bro with the bros here and trying to push a little harder on them. Because remember, just like we saw last week with Paul's instruction to husbands that their bodies also belong to their wives, which would have been just outrageous for them to hear. He's saying, your, your body also belongs to her. You are to serve her. Here, same thing. He's writing into a culture, into a historical time period, this patriarchal 
culture where domineering male headship was the expected norm. That's who he's writing to, and I'll just leave it to you to decide whether or not that still continues to today. Probably. But what it means is that who he's writing to here, he's writing to these husbands. They would have read that part before, verses 22 and 24, about wives deferring to their husbands, and they would have been like, yes, that's right. Amen, Paul. Yes, but Paul here all of a sudden is like, yeah, 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 yeah. Hold on a second, husband. Before you uh, continue on with your high five party here, I, wanna, I have something to bring to you, actually, and that you've actually got a submissive role to play in your marriage as well in order to bring it to completion. What? You've got a submissive role to play as well in your marriage, and it's this. You are to sacrifice everything. Everything. Position, power, authority, everything, even to the point of giving your own life in order to love your wife and bring your marriage to completion. That's your submissive role. Go. So, anyone? Any husbands in here killing that right now? Knocking that Jesus role out of the park in your own marriage? I, I'm sure not. <laughs> not to this degree anyway. I might want to, but I'm sure not doing it. The reason for that, the reason you're not doing it is the same reason your wife finds it so incredibly painful to submit to you in her curve-reshaping ways because you're selfish. You're curved inward on yourself just like she is. Yeah, it feels impossible. It feels like I can't, why should I have to do that? I can't do that. And the more, actually, the more you look at this role, the more impossible and terrifying it becomes because think about it. Not only are we to consider the submission of power and status, even life that Jesus willingly sacrificed in order to love his bride, the church, we also have to consider the broken, messy, dysfunctional, oftentimes rebellious kind of bride the church is. Whew. Which is one reason why when Paul says to love your wives, he uses the Greek word agape, which means fully committed, passionate, unconditional love. That's the kind of love Jesus has to have for a bride like the church. And that's the kind of love he calls for you to have for your wife, based not on her performance, but on your loving, sacrificial commitment to her. To sacrifice everything. Give up power. Give up authority in order to love her. Submit yourself to her. And maybe in light of such a call as this, maybe some husbands in here want to be asked, well, why is the husband called to do this? Why does he have to take all the weight of these heavy, consequential decisions on himself and serve the wife with this sacrificial servant leadership like this and not the other way around? Why can't she make the decisions? Why can't she make the call on these hard things? Why not? Once again, we don't know. We're not told. But, once again, if you consider the way that, first of all, this role helps a husband curve himself outwards, looking again to the description of the gender-specific consequences of the fall in Genesis 3.16, I think we get some ideas. Because along with the wife being told, your desire will be for your husband, she's also told, and your husband will rule over you. That's a consequence of the fall. Your husband will rule over you. And this is not loving, sacrificial leadership. This is crushing, oppressing, domineering rule. That's the orientation of our hearts now as men because of the fall. 
and we've seen it painfully played out again and again today as well as throughout the history of the world. And so once again, I think it's incredibly significant that the role God assigns to the husband in marriage is one of sacrificing power, laying down authority and status in order to serve and exalt his bride, applying positive force in the exact opposite direction of his inward curve. And the way his sacrificial surrender helps bring about completion to the wife, as well as to their co-reflection of the image of God, is looking at the way Jesus radically redefines what headship actually means in John 13. This is where Jesus, who is perfectly, profoundly above his disciples in every way, as God in human flesh, on the night before he goes to the cross to take the sin of the world on himself, takes off his outer robe, wraps himself in a towel in the dress of the lowest slave, and stoops down and washes the feet of his disciples. Saying, as he returns to the table, he, he looks them all in the face, and he says this, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master. You see it? Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah, I'm your Lord and your master. Yes, I'm, I'm the head of this home. But what you need to learn is what I'm demonstrating here is what true headship looks like. What true power looks like, what true greatness looks like. It's not asserting your power. It's about giving it up. It's about sacrificing it, actually, for the good of the other, to serve the other, stepping down from position in order to exalt the other, and to do it at the cost of yourself, which he then goes on to do most extremely and powerfully by sacrificing his very life in order to redeem us. Jesus is saying, that's what, that's what headship is supposed to mean, actually. Not domineering control, laying down power, submitting to your wife in this way. Whenever a husband does this, whenever he submits power, submits to his wife in this, with this sacrificial le leadership, which I'm just going to go on a limb and say is probably a great deal easier to submit to herself, what Paul is showing us here is God's good design in the way that his submission to her helps recurve himself as well as her and brings completion to their marriage in a way that he alone could not. Both of them have an inward curve that needs to be reshaped individually, but they've also got one together, and they need each other in order to help reshape it. To lose oneself that the other may find his or herself, said John Stott, that is the essence of the gospel of Christ. Each seeking to enable the other to become more fully himself and herself with the harmonious complementarity of the sexes. And that's absolutely what we're seeing here. But, of course, if, if your mind works at all like mine does, you are flipping the pages here and you'll be like, okay, but so, wait, like that's it? That, that's all the Bible says about this that that no 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 sorry sorry <laughs> i'm gonna 
I'm going to need a lot more details here, a lot more instruction. Okay, so how does this work? What's that supposed to look like in my marriage? Or if I ever get married one day, what's that going to look like? How am I supposed to do that? What's the husband supposed to do the wife doesn't? What's the wife supposed to do? What about this scenario and that scenario? But as Kathy concludes in this chapter she wrote, the Bible deliberately does not give you these answers. Why? She goes on, you and your spouse are different people and live in a different time and probably a different place. The basic roles, sacrificial leader, deferential helper, are binding, but every couple must work out how that will be expressed in their own marriage. The very process of making these decisions is a key part of what it is to think out and honor your gender differences. But here's the good news. While the circumstances in which we seek to work out this in our marriages, present or future, while these circumstances constantly change, the hope for every single one of us is the very same Jesus who submitted his will to the Father and who sacrificed everything to love us with an unconditional love does not change. In fact, it never changes. And as we've looked at in almost every message in this series, Paul reminds us once again at the end of his passage in Ephesians 5.32, if you look at it, all the beautiful curve reshaping realities that exist within a marriage, the, the, the covenant promise, the one flesh uniting, uh, even at, are, are at times frustratingly annoying gender differences. All these things together are ultimately nothing more than shadows. They're nothing more than signposts pointing us toward a profoundly deeper completion in Christ than anything that we could ever know or understand or possibly find in this life and for which all of creation is longing. We're longing for this completion that will at last come not in one another, but in Christ and ultimately in his return. We were made for relationship with Christ. We were made for relationship with our creator, and it's only in him that we are truly and fully made complete. It's a completion that begins when we trust Christ as our savior and that will ultimately be completed one day when he returns. For speaking of that day when Christ returns for his bride and at last undoes all the distorting, curving power of the curse over his creation and undoes it for all time. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know even as I am fully known. We long for that day. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, make us fully complete in you.